16, 16 to 14. As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God, who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, These men are Jews, and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrate tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they, had, when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoner were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundation of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were opened, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that all that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to them, to him, and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night, and washed their wounds, and he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house, and set food before them, and he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. But when it was day, the magistrate sent the police, saying, Let the men go. And the jailer reported these words to Paul, saying, The magistrates have sent to let you go. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. But Paul said to them, They have beaten us publicly uncondemned men, men who are Roman citizens and have thrown us into prison. And do they now throw us out secretly? No, let them come themselves and take us out. The police reported these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. So they came and apologized to them, and they took them out and asked them to leave the city. So they went out of the prison and visited Lydia, and when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. Now, the newspapers and news feeds over the last couple of weeks have been full of reports on the demise of Christianity in the United Kingdom. So Wednesday, 10 days ago, the Times published this survey of clergy. Britain is no longer a Christian nation now, say the clergy. And that has produced a whole flurry of further articles and pieces. Rod Little, who's a pretty kind of grumpy sort of writer, um, he produced a, a piece blaming infantilizing messages and mission statements from church leaders. 
feel slightly threatened by that. And then the independent of all things suddenly delivered something into my uh, uh, newsfeed, and it was an article featuring, can you believe it, two young members of our six o'clock congregation. Imagine my surprise to be clicking on it and suddenly find uh, uh, the face of somebody who will remain nameless uh, amongst us here this evening, peering at me from the article. This, of course, is hardly news. So a guy called Dr. Callum Brown produced a, a book in 2009 called The Death of Christian Britain. And for decades now, the formal and nominal Christianity with which people of my generation grew up has been in decline, and I think rightly so, because church leaders across the nation as a whole have failed to declare the Christian truth with courage and conviction, and that has produced the death of Christian Britain. But given that that is the state, and we now live in an essentially secularist, pagan country, what would it look like for the gospel to take hold once again as people of your generation now start to speak the gospel with clarity and conviction, with what church leaders should have been doing for the last 150 years. Now, I think this passage and these Sundays, these first six Sundays of the autumn, are going to point us in the right direction for this. What does it look like? Flick forward to chapter 19 and verse 20. This is where we're headed. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Now, the old translation has it like this, the right word order according to the original Greek language. So mightily grew the word of God and prevailed. And on your hand out there, I've underlined the new part of this statement. This statement comes a number of occasions in this book of Acts. And the new thing that is introduced in this section is it mightily grew and prevailed. And what the author, Luke, is wanting to show us is that, yeah, the gospel word of Jesus Christ, it will advance. It will advance advance mightily and it will prevail as and when it is proclaimed. But not only will it, but also kind of this is the sort of thing it might look like so that we have right expectation. Let's say one other thing by way of introduction that is introduced in our passage. So flick back a couple of pages and you will see that the slave girl who's pursuing Paul shouting out says, these men are servants of the most high God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. Cross the column there to verse 30. Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Verse 31, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. So this word that is advancing mightily, the triumphant advance of the word of God is what you might call this. This word that advances and prevails mightily across the world is the word of salvation. And because Acts is written cumulatively, Luke, who wrote it, assumes that we've read previous chapters. The Apostle Paul has already explained that the gospel he preaches is a gospel of salvation in the name of Jesus Christ. 
I've just jotted down at the top of the handout there uh, a, a summary statement. Uh, you see Acts 13, third kind of bullet points down. Let it be known to you that through this man, Jesus, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes in Jesus is freed from sin. So this is the gospel. This is the Christian message that is to be proclaimed across the world, that in and through the Lord Jesus Christ, because of his death on the cross, carrying God's judgment at our moral and spiritual failure, we can be saved from judgment that will come at the end of life in the name of Jesus. It's a gospel of salvation. Now, it is this gospel that Luke wants us to see will advance the gospel of Jesus as Savior, the gospel of Jesus who was nailed to the cross to carry God's judgment at our sin, the gospel of Jesus who's been raised to new life, the gospel of Jesus who is now enthroned, the gospel of Jesus who will never see death and corruption, who is Lord of all, offers salvation from God's judgment, friendship with God, a gospel of salvation that will prevail. Now, last week, we saw that Jesus advances this gospel word through his sovereign direction. Paul had to change his, his travel plans. The spirit of Jesus led him to change his travel plans, prevented him from doing things. Jesus is advancing this gospel. And last week, we saw that Jesus advances the gospel through opening the hearts of individual men and women to receive it. This week, the gospel advanced through confusion and opposition. The gospel advanced through supernatural intervention. The gospel advanced through resolute, principled determination. Well, let's get into it. Confusion and opposition. It's very messy. And we mustn't imagine that it's going to be anything different. We kind of think, oh, there's been some tremendous opposition. Wow, we better all down tools and stop seeking to speak of the gospel of salvation. No, that's how it always was. The gospel advanced through confusion and hostile opposition. The confusion's there in verses 16 to 18. The opposition is there in verses 19 to 24. We're going to have a look at the confusion. As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her own as much gain by fortune telling. She followed Paul and us crying out. These men are servants of the most high God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. This she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. It came out that very hour. Now, here are Paul and Silas. They're, they've been at the Jewish place of prayer. They're now going through the city, and everywhere they go, they're pursued by this girl. Whatever the spirit was, it enabled her to recognize what Paul and Silas were doing. They were proclaiming salvation in the name of the Most High God. We find the same in the life of Jesus. The spirits often see things much more clearly than his disciples. But everywhere they go, go, this woman is muddying the waters, stirring up trouble, spreading confusion. And it's not at all surprising then that Paul 
gets frustrated. So verse 18, he became greatly annoyed, turned, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out, and the spirit leaves. Here we see the triumphant advance of the gospel. Here we see the confusion and opposition. But once the spirit has been dealt with, there's an altogether different problem that emerges. I think we find this problem difficult to get to grips with because we don't at this stage in our history come from the kind of culture in which superstition and black magic is dominant. But as Christianity recedes in this country, we will find superstition increase apace. Anyone from an animistic background will recognize what's going on here. In those kind of cultures, kind of witch doctors and those who can use a sort of spooky priestly craft to manipulate events, they can assume extraordinary power. And these owners of this girl immediately realize that her deliverance means their loss. Verse 19, when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. So you can see that their concern is an economic one. This Christian message is damaging for business. That's not the complaint they make. When they brought them, verse 20, to the magistrates, they said, these men are Jews and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. They state their case, not in economic terms, but in political and religious terms. They're not truly Roman. Uh, They're not following the kind of customs of our city. It's a very clever tactic. One writer puts it like this. They maneuver for social advantage and use labeling to heighten social boundaries. When we were talking about this passage as a group of uh, leaders of the different congregations, uh, Anarian Glynn, who leads the four o'clock congregation, said, this is basically a culture war. They see that the Christian gospel is going to threaten their particular precious way of life, finance, whatever it happens to be. Immediately they stir up trouble, but not on the basis of the money. They find some other way of accusing. And neither of the accusations is true. Paul and Silas are not promoting the Jewish religion. They're actually promoting Christianity. And Paul and Silas are not advocating practices that are legal for Roman citizens either. They're not a threat to the state. They're not a threat to social cohesion. They're not a threat to anybody who loves truth and integrity and love and goodness. The gospel never is quite the reverse. If you love truth, integrity, goodness, love, why salvation in Jesus' name is the most wonderful thing. Because Philippi is a Roman colony, the Philippians are extraordinarily proud of their Roman citizen's status. Well, they raise that. They're not properly Roman. They're causing trouble. They don't fit. And they use that as an excuse to silence them. They present their charge in terms which appeal to the civic pride of the people. They don't deal with the real issue. 
Now, 22 to 24 record the outcome. The crowd joined in attacking them. The magistrates tore garments off them, gave orders to beat them with rods. When they'd inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stock. So they're not in the kitchen in Wandsworth prison. Now, what do we learn? What do we learn? We're going to see that the gospel does advance and triumph mightily. It does so through confusion, false allegation, deliberate and unfair manipulation. This challenges, I think, our naivety as Christians. I tend to think that all right-minded people will automatically see the truth of the Christian gospel and welcome it with open arms. Do you know, I can remember, shortly after I became a Christian, going up to university determined to share the Christian message with my best mate and be absolutely flabbergasted that he didn't welcome it with open arms because it was such good news. Don't be naive, William. We're in a battle There are real and deep-rooted vested interests. There will be confusion and false allegation. I mean, those of you who know the Gospels, think of Jesus when he cast the demons out of the pigs, and this whole area had been held captive by violent and vicious, horrible oppression. And what happened? You would imagine the local townspeople would say, Jesus, come on in, we want to see this. It's fantastic that you liberate people to be truly human, that you save men and women. They begged him to leave. Oh, because of the money and the financial implications. So you would think that a company would welcome the Christian gospel with open arms, wouldn't you? Yeah, we want it proclaimed widely through the company. People will become full of integrity. They will work hard. They won't try and pull the wool over their employees' eyes. You would think a school would love there to be a Christian union. You know, the kids will work hard, and and they'll try and love their other fellow pupils. No, 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 there are vested interests. And there would be people in various lobby groups who see the Christian message that commands following the Lord Jesus Christ, serving him, living under his rule. Oh, hang on, that threatens my sex life or my financial life or my view of the world. Vested interests. Don't be naive. Secondly, the truth of the Christian gospel prevails as a result of supernatural intervention. Don't be unbelieving. Now, we've already seen one example of the intervention of God in last week's talk. Uh, There was the triumph of God's word as he intervened to direct Paul's travel plans. But in verses 25 and 26, we find another supernatural intervention. Just look at it. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. Hey, fancy being in a prison next to Paul. Wouldn't be very quiet, would it? Suddenly, there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were open, and everybody's bonds were unfastened. And when the jailer woke and saw prison doors were open, he threw his sword, drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing the prisoners had escaped. Paul cried with a loud voice, Don't harm yourself. We're all here. 
Now, there are a number of ways of reading this. One person, one commentator who's a skeptic, one of the kind of people that actually has caused the death of Christian Britain, he uh, remarks that this incident contains a, quote, a nest of improbabilities. You come across people like that. I don't think there's a God who rules his creation. Therefore, it can't possibly have happened. And that's not a very honest way of looking at the evidence. In every other area that our author Luke writes, his record of events demonstrates extraordinary precision. He records geography, meteorology, historical and political events. There's acute accuracy. On occasion, he takes material previously recorded by others deliberately to include in his account. He always follows it meticulously. He was a medical doctor. He lived in the same world that you and I live in. He knew that dead people don't get up off the slab. And so for him to write something like this is just as extraordinary as somebody in our age to write something like this. Even in his account of the Roman jail, it fits, the historians tell me, with the process of the trial, with the marketplace where it would have happened, the precise description of the type of police who would have arrested him, all match what actually would have happened in normal historical circumstances of the time. So, you know, we could discount the earthquake to suit our way of looking at the world and say, well, it just didn't happen. Or we could just say that it was a coincidence. You know, it just happened that at that point at midnight, in just the right place, just the right thing happened. You know, again, you come across people like that. Well, maybe, maybe. But Acts is actually full of incidents like this where God deliberately intervenes supernaturally in order to see the gospel advance. And so I suppose here is the challenge to me, you know, am I actually a believer in a God who is active today? Or am I secretly what's called a deist, somebody who thinks God wound the world up and then is off having a nap and letting the whole thing unfold, as it were? Now, please hear me right. I'm not suggesting that we should expect earthquakes and angels and visions at every point when we head off to explain the gospel to a friend at work. No, the normal way of God working is to work through his God-given laws and the norms of physics. It would be most strange for God to have set the universe up to operate in a particular way and then for him forever to be poking around with a little stick, altering tiny incidents. Nonetheless, we should not be at all surprised that as the gospel breaks into what we call Europe for the very first time under the Apostle Paul, God acts divinely and supernaturally to ensure that Paul is in the right place to speak to the right person at precisely the right time. You could rule it out as a nest of improbabilities. You could explain it as coincidence. But the man or woman of faith should be expecting God to work. I've been trying to think of examples, and I mean, they're not as dramatic of Paul the Apostle with the earthquake. But on numerous occasions, when I started here at St. I used to keep 
a regular diary of what I prayed for every day. There was one particular appointment that, as I look back on it, look back, looked back on it, self-evidently God brought the right person into the right place at the right time and sovereignly overruled various others. I'm not going to tell you who it was. They might get big-headed because it was a very key appointment (laughs) and uh, a lot of good came as a result of it. I'm also aware of numbers of men and women, they don't sort of trumpet around, but who have become Christians kind of not in the normal way. One individual who woke in the middle of the night to hear a voice calling him, being used extraordinarily in his ministry, now quite old. Another individual who God just, he was walking past, saw a huge crowd coming into this building on a Tuesday lunchtime. He thought there must be free food. So he attached himself to the back of the, cra- back of the crowd and he found himself sitting right in the middle there. There were 400 people here and he couldn't get out. But as he heard the speaker speaking, he was absolutely pinned to his seat, used in an extraordinary way. When I first came to St. Helens, there were 20 or so on the staff then. And we went around the group of the 20 well over 50% have become Christians through that one individual. So, kind of, am I naive in my expectations? No, the the Christian gospel is, is a command to repent, turn around, and follow Jesus as your king. When it lands, it lands amongst vested interests. There will be hostile opposition and confusion. So don't be surprised when you find that in your university or your office. It advances under God's supernatural supervision. Uh, Just finally and briefly, it also advances through resolute, principled determination. Now, I've been struggling quite how to put this, but as you go through the piece, don't you admire the Apostle Paul with his extraordinary kind of entrepreneurial determination? He just will not do anything but speak of Jesus and take every opportunity to speak of salvation. And uh, I've given this a, a kind of sub-point, don't be soft. So with the slave girl, you know, he speaks in the jail at night. He speaks. I mean, if I was strapped to the jailer and there was an earthquake, I tell you, I'd be looking for the nearest delivery lorry to strap myself to the bottom of so I could get out of the thing. But what Paul does, he says, worry, we're all here, he says. We're all here. And then the guy says, what must I do to be saved? And he's straight in there. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Judgment is coming. You will not escape it. Jesus is Lord. He rose from the dead. You will face him in judgment. There is one way of salvation in the name of Jesus. And he believed. I think the clearest example of Paul's entrepreneurial um, uh, trait is there in 35 through 39. When it was day, the magistrates sent the police saying, let these men go. The jailer reported these words to Paul saying, the magistrates are sent to let you go. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. Paul said to them, 
For they've beaten us publicly, uncondemned men who are Roman citizens, and they've thrown us into prison. Do they now throw us out secretly? No. Let them come themselves and take us out. Now, what do you think of that? Is this Paul just being difficult? Is it that he just wants to get one over on those who've beaten him? Is it that Paul is kind of demanding his rights? I think he is using the laws, the established laws of the state, in order to ensure the advance of the gospel. He is determined that others who follow in his wake aren't going to get the same treatment. He's determined for the the good name of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It was an outrage that he was beaten. And so for the sake of the advance of the gospel, he summoned the magistrates to make a public apology. And so I put this little point down here, don't be a soft touch. You know, I remember one senior city businessman setting up a company-wide meeting and uh, the HR department uh, said for, for the Christian gospel, he published it across the whole company. And the HR department called him in and you know, gave him a hard time. And he showed me the letter he then wrote. He earned a lot of money for the company. And he wrote a letter to the HR department and said, um, this is very dear to my heart. There is a company just down the road. They're very open to this sort of public announcement of the gospel and uh, proclamation of it. Um, Are you sure you want to cancel the meeting? Now, you might think, I mean, and the answer was, they turned around immediately. There's a tremendous sort of flurry of feathers in the HR chicken coop uh, as they all said, oh, what are we going to do? What are we, he's going to leave, he's going to leave. And then they t- changed their mind immediately. But you see, he was savvy. He was savvy. I've been thinking about this quite a bit this week. And uh, I happened to bump into somebody who's just moved from the six o'clock congregation into one of the other congregations earlier. And I asked um, him, what is it? Oh, do you know, I've just joined as co-chair of the faith group in our company. And our company employs several thousand people. They've got to have a faith group, DNI reasons, you know, diversity and um, inclusion. And so he, as a Christian, has put himself in as co-chair so that he can ensure the pro- others in situations like yourselves in schools. Uh, not You're not in schools, but others in situations in schools and so forth and universities have, when challenged about laying on public Christian meetings, have gone into bat on the equality and diversity agenda and have been very, very straight, not a soft touch at all, demanding that such meetings should be open for the sake of the advance of the God. We have to watch our motive... We're not doing it in order to try and come out so that we're shown to be on top. But it's for the advance of the gospel. Well, there we are. There is what I think Luke is trying to show us this week in terms of the mighty advance of the gospel. Next week, we will see a much more kind of normal pattern of gospel advance. And I really hope you'll be here for that because it shows us kind of the norm for gospel advance. But don't be surprised about the hostile opposition and the confusion preach the gospel, speak of Jesus. And, and, and don't be um, uh, unbelieving 
You know, expect God to work and to work supernaturally. And don't be a soft touch. Let's pray together. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. We praise you for this wonderful message of salvation, forgiveness, freedom from judgment, friendship with the living God. We pray, Lord, that you would give us a similar courage by the power of your Holy Spirit. Pray that you make us resolute as Paul was and make us truly believing, expecting you to work mightily for the advance of the gospel in whatever setting you have placed each one of us for your namesake. Amen.